Scripture's reading is going to be from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does his work. This is the word of the Lord. Height differential. <clears throat> Well, good morning. As Bimba mentioned, and if I've not met you yet, my name is Bijan, the pastor for our church, and we are continuing our Ephesians sermon series today. And today's sermon is really significant in the year that we've been in, and here is why. If you were here this past October, you'll remember that our vision as a church is growing in Christ as a church for the city. And we've been looking at Ephesians because this is one of the books of the Bible that shows us to grow in Christ is to simultaneously be growing as a church. And to grow as a church means we have to be growing in Christ. And so all year we've been asking the question, what does it mean for us to grow in our identities in Jesus? What does it mean to grow as a church family? And how do we then turn and love and serve our city? Ephesians 4 is actually the anchor passage for our entire vision this year. Because you saw, Paul says twice in our passage, it's there in verse 13 and verse 15, he talks about maturity. Now, think with me. This is a time of year, you know, January is a time of year in which many people, not just in a church, but many people throughout our city are thinking about resolutions. Really what they're thinking about is, how can I change? How can I be different? Most of us are aware of a version of ourselves that we would like to be and the version of ourselves that we actually are. And our resolutions or the things that we want to change is to help close the gap between the kinds of people we know we should be and the kinds of people we are. And so we make resolutions or we buy books or we talk to friends and we try to change. We try to make things different about us. And that's fine. That's good. But we all know that actually there's a big difference between changing and growing. You see, people change all the time, but sometimes they change for the worse. (laughs) You know, you can change in good ways or you can change in bad ways. Sometimes the city changes in really exciting ways and sometimes our city changes in not so exciting ways. So change by itself is not a sufficient goal. 
What we're really after is growth, healthy change in which we become better, more wise, more generous, more caring people. And the New Testament, when it describes that kind of healthy growth spiritually, the word it uses is maturity. Maturity. It's there in verse 13. It's there in verse 15. What it looks like to be growing as a Christian, to be growing in a healthy way, is to be experiencing spiritual maturity. And that's what we've been thinking about as a church all year. And actually, that's what the rest of Ephesians is all about. What does spiritual maturity look like in your individual life and in our life as a church? And so today's sermon is actually a kind of introduction to the rest of Ephesians as we continue to ground ourselves in this vision. And so, as a kind of overview, here's what I want to cover with you today. Spiritual maturity. What is it? Why is it hard? What are signs of it? What does it look like in your life? And how is it possible? What is spiritual maturity? Why is it so hard? What does it look like when it's present? And how can it be present in your life? You ready? Let's take a look. First, what is spiritual maturity? Now, the answer is there right in the text, verse 13 and verse 15. In both of those verses, Paul describes being mature, growing, experiencing spiritual health. He uses the word mature, but then notice what he says. Verse 13, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then come down to verse 15, he says, growing to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Now, if I were to ask you, describe the spiritual characteristics of someone who's mature in their faith. Probably what you would think of or what you would say are things like person who reads their Bible, person who prays, a person who comes to church, a person who serves. And those things are all really important. But notice those are all things that a person does. And we tend to think of maturity in terms of performance, the things that I do. But actually, according to the Bible, those things, the activities of our spiritual life, those are what you might call the fruits of spiritual maturity. But the root is something different. The heart of spiritual maturity, the core, you might say, is what Paul says in verse 13 and 15. Experiencing Jesus fully, and looking more like him. In other words, spiritual maturity is synonymous with knowing Jesus and growing in him. And all the things that we do, all of our spiritual practices, are ways to facilitate our knowing Jesus, but they're not an end in themselves. So to say it simply, the point of Bible reading is not Bible reading. It's to encounter Jesus, who is the point of every story and theme and verse in the Bible. And to know him. The point of prayer is not to say, I prayed today. It's to commune with the living God and be shaped by him. We come to church not to say, I went to church, but to say, I was with the family of Jesus today. And we look more like him than we did the day before. Spiritual maturity is not the things you do for Christ. It's just him. Knowing him, experiencing him, growing in him. And of course, spiritual practice are important, but they're important as means to end and never ends in themselves. The end is knowing him, knowing Jesus. Now, 
Come back with me to verse 13 because I want to keep driving into this point. Paul says, what does it look like for you to become a spiritually mature person? What does it look like for us to be a spiritually mature church? In verse 13, look at what he says. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is really significant. To be in a relationship with another person, it might be a friendship, it might be a romantic relationship, whatever, means that you get to know them as they are and not just as you want them to be. It means allowing that person to be who they are and not an image in your mind of what you hope they would be. So when Michelle and I were dating and getting to know each other, she learned things about me. She learned that I like pizza and that I like baseball. Those are two things that are true about me as a person. Could you imagine if she said at some point, you know, Bishan, it's great getting to know you and I like the pizza part of you because I also like pizza. And so we can share that. But the baseball part of you, I don't accept that. I choose to ignore that. That's not important to me. I would have to say at some level, what do you mean? These things are just me. And so at some level to know me is to accept the parts of me that you may not love or like or think are that important. How many people, how many Christians, how many of us in a church like ours today are not attaining to the wholeness and the fullness of Christ, but are making a Jesus in our own image? That we like Jesus, but what we mean is we like parts of him. We love his teaching on love and forgiveness, and we don't really like his teaching on sex and how to use our bodies. We really like his teaching about praying for our needs, the things that we want, and we have ignored his teaching about praying for our enemies. See, we could go down the list. Spiritual maturity is accepting and encountering Jesus as he is, and not the Jesus made in our own image. And so Paul's saying, Paul's inviting us to ask, are we growing in Christ? Are we growing not just in our (laughs) encounter with the parts of him that make us feel better, but the whole Christ, the full Christ? The one who says, I will give you rest, who at the next moment is able to turn tables over when people are taking advantage of others. There's a great spot in Lord Lord of the Rings. Nope, Chronicles of Narnia. You know, they were friends. (laughs) There's a great spot in one of the Chronicles of Narnia books where there's a little girl called Lucy and she's being told about Aslan. Now, if you know the story, Aslan is the Jesus figure. And Aslan is this lion, he's the king of Narnia. And she's being told about Aslan and as the description comes, she says, well, is he safe? Like he's a lion, is he safe? And a beaver that she's talking to, again, this is a kid's story. (laughs) The beaver says, is he safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. Do you know Jesus like that? Not safe, not tame, not made in your own image, but unspeakably good. That's spiritual maturity. It's him. And all the spiritual practices, all the parts of our spiritual life, serving, Bible reading, prayer, indispensable, but his means to ends. And he's the end. 
Are you attaining? Are you growing in Christ? Knowing him, reflecting him as he is. Spiritual maturity. But here's the second question. Why is it so hard? If that's what spiritual maturity is, why are we not all spiritually mature? (laughs) Why are we all not growing in the ways that we want? And the answer is in verse 14. Paul says, the opposite of being spiritually mature is like being a spiritual baby. Verse 14, he calls the church infants. And if you look at the passage, verse 13, this called spiritual maturity, but then he says, verse 14, the reason you're not actually experiencing your spiritual maturity because you're acting like a spiritual child. And then in verse 15, he comes back and says, this is how it can happen. So that's it, according to Paul. The reason why spiritual maturity is not present in your life or mine to the degree that we might hope is because actually we're prone to act like spiritual babies. And you say, that's very offensive, Bijan. Listen, notice verse 14 again. Paul says, we. It's one thing for you and I to acknowledge, yeah, we're not nearly as spiritually mature as we should be. But the apostle Paul puts himself in the same category. Now, Paul wrote 13 books of the Bible. He planted more churches than you'll ever attend. And he says he's also prone to be a spiritual baby. So if he says that, then surely we can't be too offended if he calls us spiritual babies too. And so if we're going to wrestle, if we're, if we're going to actually confront why it is that we struggle so much in growing in our spiritual life, we have to allow ourselves to reckon with what Paul's saying here. He's using this image of being a spiritual child he also uses the images of like a boat being tossed back and forth or by somebody being conned and tricked it's all the same kind of image and what's he talking about well in some here it is a child always chooses present pleasure over long-term health and that's because children and this is not actually a criticism of children it's where they are in their life Children are remarkably self-absorbed. They want what they want when they want it. And it is meltdown kingdom when they don't get it. Why? Because they live in a world in which they've not yet learned how to discern and to distinguish. And to act in ways that not only fit in with others, but are able to distinguish between present pleasure and long-term good. Remarkably self-absorbed. And Paul says, spiritually speaking, actually, that's our condition. That we are often unable to make choices that promote spiritual health because instead we're distracted by short-term pleasures and things that we think will make us happy. And we look inward and we're really self-absorbed spiritually. And Paul says, that's the reason why there's so much stagnation, why there's so much lack of growth in your spiritual life. Now, To say it that way is just another way of saying that the real problem of the human condition is sin. Here at RCL, one of the things I'm always saying is that sin is not first and foremost a set of behaviors, like the stuff you do, but it's actually a posture of your heart. Because what sin does, this condition that we call sinfulness, is it turns your soul inward. It takes self and it puts self on the throne. And so that you become the most important thing in your universe. And everything else is relegated to second importance or third or fourth. Now, here's what's interesting. 
Paul's saying the reason we're struggling spiritually is because we're acting like children and children are unable to choose long-term health over short-term pleasure. They're always thinking about themselves. You're doing that spiritually. That's sin. And, you know, the Bible says human beings have always, sin has always been here. Like we've always had sin since our first parents fell. But here's something that's unique for our cultural moment. There's never been a culture in the history of the world like ours that actually pushed people inward more than ours does. To say it differently, phrases like, hey, you do you, would have made no sense 2,000 years ago. Because in other cultures, at other times, in other parts of world history, and even in other places in the world today, you don't do you, you do what's best for your community. Or you do what's best for your religion, in your religion. But we live in a time which can best be characterized by this phrase, expressive individualism. In which, as a people, we are conditioned, we are told, look within yourself, find your desires, find what your longings are, see what you really want. That's the real you. And then live and project that out into the world. And don't let anyone tell you you shouldn't do that or that's wrong or that's bad. You do you. Tara Isabella Burton, who's a writer about religion in the modern West, has a book recently put out last year, I think. The book is called Self-Made. And she's describing what I'm talking about now. And listen to how she puts it. She says, our cultural moment in the contemporary English-speaking world, at least, is one in which we are increasingly called to be self-creators, people who yearn to make ourselves. Our desires, our longings, our yearnings to become or to acquire, to be seen a certain way, those are the truest and the most honest parts of ourselves. So it's only by looking inward, by investigating, cultivating, curating our inner selves, that we can understand our fundamental purpose in this life. And therefore achieve the personal and professional goals that we believe we were meant to achieve. Whether you know it or not, whether or not you realize it, culture is just pushing you inward. You do you. And this is why spiritual life is so hard today. You know, many kids right now are growing up hearing Queen Elsa sing, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. I mean, that's expressive individualism. Like you you just, whatever you want. And think about how different that is than the vision of following Jesus. Because when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, the language he uses isn't like going to a spa. He just says, to follow me means to deny yourself and take up your cross. That's images of denial and surrender. Not find yourself, but lose yourself. And so... (laughs) Our culture is pushing against us and making it really hard for us to grow spiritually. And therefore, we have to ask the question, what are some of the signs or what are some of the marks? If we are, in fact, becoming spiritually mature people, how will we know? Again, in just a minute, we'll talk about how it's possible. But let's ask the question for just a minute, what would spiritual maturity look like if it were happening in our life and in our church? if we were really growing in our identity in Jesus. Paul gives us two answers, and I need to be really brief here, partly because we'll be unpacking these themes in the weeks to come. But here's the answer. 
if the root of spiritual maturity is Jesus being with him, the fruits of spiritual maturity that Paul talks about are ministry and unity. Ministry and unity. How will you know if you're spiritually maturing as a person? Paul says first, verse 12, look, God has given us the church leaders, that's what verse 11 says, to, verse 12, equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And then come down to verse 16, we grow as everyone joined and held together, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Here's what Paul's saying. Spiritual babies are very self-centered. They're very self-absorbed. And so one of the ways that you'll know you're growing spiritually is you become more selfless. And you start giving yourself to ministry. That's the phrase in verse 12, works of service. It's a Greek word, dak, and neos. It just means ministry. But stay with me. (laughs) When we hear the word ministry, if you've heard it at all, we think about people who work in a church. You know, I'm in ministry. I'm the pastor or the music team. They're doing ministry. But ministry doesn't mean people who get paid to do work in a church. Ministry means any ways that you choose to serve others, to move into broken spaces and bring healing and renewal. And the question for you is, are you engaged in any kind of ministry? Because one of the signs that we are a people who are maturing is that we become more selfless. And we say not, who's there to serve me, but who can I serve with whatever I have? And so a diagnostic question for every one of us this morning and for our church is to ask, are we all doing ministry? I don't have time to go into verse 11. It's a fascinating verse. Paul's describing all the different kinds of leadership that a church has, but here's the point. The reason leaders in the church exist is not to monopolize ministry, but to multiply it. Like if I'm doing my job well, then more of you are going to be activated to serve Jesus in the church and in our city. And that's a sign of spiritual health. And so the invitation for all of us to reflect on this morning is, where am I serving? Now, if you say, I don't know where to start. We have so many needs in our church. Just, my goodness, please lift your hand. We will find a place for you to serve. But don't just think about serving inside the walls of a church. Think about serving at your job. Think about serving in our city. Think about serving with your family. Think about ways that you, if you're a Christian, as a representative of Jesus, can bring his kingdom into a place where it's not fully being experienced yet. Service. Selflessness for the sake of others. Ministry. But notice also Paul says, and this is down in verse 15, he talks about, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 13, he talks about unity. Now, again, I got to be brief, far too brief, and I apologize. But he talks about unity. And unity is very interesting because in the book of Ephesians especially, the unity that Christians are called to experience is not uniformity. We are meant to be one, but we're not all the same. We're a community that's deeply different, but comes together for a common purpose. That's the unity that Paul's talking about. Now, let me give you a case study. There was a man uh, in the early church called Peter. He was one of Jesus' apostles, one of the few people chosen by Jesus to do ministry. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, if you were to look at Peter's CV, you'd say, that's a spiritually mature guy. 
He preached the first sermon ever in the history of the church. He saw the risen Jesus. He knew a lot of Bible. He actually wrote some of the Bible. I mean, that's an impressive spiritual person. And in Acts chapter 10, God confronts Peter. And to put it, you know, rhetorically, in light of our sermon today, God says to Peter, a lot of people think you're a spiritual giant, but actually you're a spiritual baby. And here's why. Because even though Peter was a leader in the church, even though Peter was doing a lot of stuff for Jesus, he allowed racism and ethnocentrism to cloud his judgment. And there were people in the world that because of racial differences, he wouldn't sit and have a meal with. And God comes to him and says, that's not going to work. And in Acts 10, God takes Peter on a journey in which he's confronted by the grace of God. He's exposed as actually having this classes, uh, tribal, racial injustice in his heart. And the chapter ends with Peter and a guy called Cornelius sitting and having a meal together. And he says, that's the kingdom. Like that spiritual maturity is recognizing that unity, deep unity with people who are very different from you is a sign of the gospel at work. Because what does the gospel do? It tears down divisions. It breaks down barriers. It says to people who are deeply different, when you can come together as a family, you're showing the world the power of the gospel to bring healing. And until that moment, there was an aspect of Peter's spiritual life where he was a spiritual infant. And God met him with his grace to say, we need to grow here. And so the question for you simply is this, Are you sharing life with anybody who's really different than you? Are you sharing life with anybody with whom you stand to benefit nothing from? But you're drawn into a relationship simply because you share in common a love for Jesus. That's what the church is meant to be. A community of people who are deeply different and yet come together as one. Emmanuel Katongale, who is a Ugandan theologian, puts it this way. He says, we're called to be strange in the same way that the early Christian communities were strange to the world around them. You see, the community in Antioch brought together, that's the, one of the early Christian churches, the community in Antioch brought together Jews and Samaritans, Greeks and Romans, slaves and free, men and women, in a way that was so confusing that people around them didn't know what to call them. So they called them Christians. The only way they knew how to describe these peculiar people was to say that they must be followers of that odd preacher from Galilee. And the world is longing for such new and odd communities in our time. I wonder, does London look at us, our church, your life, the way you engage with people in your job or in your neighborhood, and say, you have a propensity to get along with people that seem to have nothing in common with you. Why is that? And the answer of the church is because we have something profoundly in common. Not political ideology, not skin color, not how much money we make. But we are loved and love Jesus Christ. And that holds us together. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. Is that happening in your life? Is that happening in our church? You say, we want it to. How is it possible? Well, this is where we'll close our sermon today. And the answer is in verse 15. How is spiritual immaturity possible? Let me give you the answer in a word, and then I'll unpack it. Spiritual maturity happens by immersing yourself in the gospel. 
The gospel is the key to spiritual maturity. The way Paul talks about it, verse 15, he says, look, instead, instead of being spiritual infants, instead, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. How do you grow as an individual, as a church? Paul says the key, the trick is truth and love. Now we know this and we, we know two things. We know how important it is to keep truth and love together and we know how hard it is to do that. Truth without love is too hard and love without truth is way too soft. And most of us err temperamentally on one side or the other. There are some of you out there today who think of yourself as truth tellers. I tell people how it is. I don't mind conflict. I just let them know I'm valiant for truth. And actually what you are is just kind of not very gentle, not very loving, right? So we think we're standing up for the truth. We're standing up for the right. But all we're doing is bludgeoning people with our version of things. It's truth, but no love. And on the other hand, there are some of us and maybe more of us who temperamentally think of ourselves as very loving, but deep down, sorry if it's offensive, it's just cowardice. Like, we don't want to rock the boat. We think we're being loving and gentle and, and kind, but we just don't want conflict. And so we're always sugarcoating. We're always sidestepping. We're always minimizing. And that's not good for you because resentment grows. And it's also not good for people around you because they're never going to grow and change without being able to receive criticism and grow and change. We all need feedback. Paul says the key is truth and love. Together, equally, perfectly, truth, total honesty. Love, deep compassion and affection, holding both of those together perfectly. And so I ask you, is there any among us who does that? Is there any of us that would say, yes, I perfectly balance truth and love all the time in all of my communication with people? I think we'd all have to say we fall woefully short. Woefully short. So how do we grow? The gospel. The only way that you become a person who speaks Truth in love is if you first realize that you've been spoken to with truth in love. You see, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who's experienced God speaking to them with truth and love. Perfectly. Because on one hand, think about Jesus. His life was the embodiment of truth. There was never a moment where Jesus was too cowardice to tell somebody what it is that he needed to tell them. And yet there was never a moment where Jesus allowed personal vengeance or fear to keep him from doing so in a way that was profoundly gentle and loving. There was never a human being who perfectly balanced truth and love like Jesus. Read the Gospels, you'll see it. And then you get to the end of Jesus' life and what happens? This perfect embodiment of truth and love goes to the cross and he dies in our place. And the cross is the greatest declaration in the history of the cosmos of the holding together of truth and love. Because what does the cross say? How did you become a Christian? If you're a Christian here today, how does anyone become a Christian? First, you confront the message of the cross, which says to you, you were so broken, like you were so messed up in your sin, in your selfishness, that the only hope for rescue was the son of God dying in your place. Like, that's a really offensive truth if you really hear it. Like, you had no ability to save yourself, to help yourself, to fix yourself. Your only hope 
was God doing it for you through the death of his son. That's how far away you were. That's a hard truth. That's an offensive truth. And yet, that truth (laughs) is spoken with more love than we've ever known. Because what's the greatest way you can love somebody? By sacrificing, by laying down your life for them. And the greatest sacrifice in the history of the world is the Son of God saying, I will take the judgment and the justice of God the Father on my shoulders so you can have a seat at the table. He takes the wrath, he takes the punishment, he stands in your place so that you can be brought into God's family. The cross is the word at the same time that you are more loved and more broken than you would have ever cared to imagine. Truth and love together. And if you see that, if you see the gospel, if you see Jesus dying for you because you both needed it and because he delights in you, and you immerse yourself in that gospel, then you become a person who can speak truth and love. You become a person, slowly but surely, who's able to say things that need to be said and in ways that are loving and never out to get revenge or vengeance. You grow. And this is just a primer, Paul says, on how we become a spiritually mature community. Immerse yourself in the gospel. See who Jesus is. See what he's done. And we become a church that grows to love and serve our city. So let's pray for that now and ask God to help us do just that. Our God, thank you for meeting us this morning in your word. And as we come now to our time of response, we, we pray for transformation. We want to encounter Jesus, the one who is truth and love. We want to hear your truth and love meet us this morning. Lord, some of us are new to all of this. We're exploring the faith. Help us to understand what a next step could be. Help us to understand what giving ourselves to Jesus would look like today. Help us to do that. Others of us are honestly tired of how slow our growth in you feels. We feel like we're stagnant. May it change today. May we encounter something of the loveliness of Jesus that awakens us. May we be confronted by an aspect of Jesus that we've been neglecting. And may you wake us up from our slumber. May there be revival in our hearts, in this church, and if you will, in our city. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. And everyone said, amen.